it was not fun being a prophet. And in this story that we see today, we kind of see everything unravel for Elijah. Now, someone once said that when it rains something in our culture, it drips into the church and into the Christian life. And one of the gifts of secularism and uh, the rise of secularism, uh, and I say this facetiously, is that when you take God out of an equation as being a source or origin or designer of life, and then when you convince people that they are really the interpreter of their own lives, they're an interpreter of existence and life, what you get is a very narcissistic world and culture. And you can even see that uh, play out even right now. All around the Western world, a culture war wages on who is supposed to define ourselves. This is a gift of secularism. This is a gift, ultimately, of the Enlightenment, something that kind of was birthed hundreds of years ago. We are now called, in our culture and in our society, we are now even legally bound to allow people to define themselves in a way that we have no opinion about it at all. This is, uh, this is even in our own country, in the particular province of New Brunswick, this whole issue is even, might even force an election. Because who are we... Who are we to say that a young child can't determine and define themselves according to what they think? But this has not been a struggle that has just kind of um, uh, arisen over the last couple decades. We as, as people have often, even those of us who walk with God, we, it's a tug of war. We often look at ourselves in such a way that is detrimental to ourselves. We, we, we think we understand who we are. We think we understand our impact in our lives. We think we understand what our purpose is. And then all of a sudden we come unraveled and we are reminded again that God is the one who defines us. He is the one who defines us. He is the one who has the last word on who we are. I want to look at this today. Now last, or two weeks ago, we looked at one of the most amazing happenings in the history of the prophets of Israel, where Elijah has a showdown, where Elijah is one versus 600 or 800 prophets, and God shows up in this amazing way, and Elijah wins. It is just amazing. It is the stuff of Hollywood dreams. Elijah is the man on the ground, and he wins this incredible victory. He sees justice he sees goodness prevail over evil. And this was just not the way for prophets. Prophets often just struggled under the weight of evil and injustice, of no one listening to them. But Elijah has this moment where victory and goodness and love and justice prevails. But it isn't enough. Because Elijah unravels. And I want to look at that today. Not only is anything that we can dream that we can have in this world enough for us, but we aren't enough for ourselves. God is the one who defines us and shapes us. And I want to I look at this story, and I want us to see God's grace in being the one who determines our steps, who defines who we are, 
And I want to get into it. So let's go to 1 Kings 19, 1 to 9. Now again, we, are, we, we need to be reminded, Elijah is sent to an apostate nation. And his simple calling, as all prophets was, was, you guys, you got to turn back. Now I, I've said this before. If you think prophets were all about predicting a future that people in the present would not see, that is not the prophet's job. The prophet's job, the prophet's job is to, oh, me again? Is it not? Yeah, it says it's, oh, it's muted. Oh, sorry, everybody. To all the throngs online. (laughs) It was muted. I forget where I was. Right. Let's just read the Bible. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. What a, what a wiener Ahab is. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. He's the king. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid. Wait a second. Elijah just saw a whole bunch of prophets, and he saw this huge miracle. But okay, well, he was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Of course, he was expecting that he would be in glory. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The first thing we see from this story is that seeing ourselves apart from God is a recipe for disaster. So as we've said, this Elijah story is about as Hollywood as you could get. Now we've all seen it a million times as we watched our movies or as we streamed things online. Be it the Matt Damon's Born Identity or Tom Cruise's Mission Impossible. Maybe you've seen that Liam Neeson's uh, trilogy, the Taken series, or even Indiana Jones. One man or one woman against the world and they come out on top against all odds. This is Elijah's story. He is totally alone in his campaign against darkness. There is no one around. For years and years, Israel has descended into total apostasy. They are pagans now. They're worshiping Baal. They're worshiping worshiping Asherah. God's prophets are being axed. God's temples contaminated. And an ever-growing darkness is gripping the nation. Who's going to rise up? Who's going to fight? Is anyone? And then you see the camera zoom in and Elijah's walking Elijah is. And with a short prayer, kaboom, the sacrifice explodes. God is there and the prophets of Baal are finally dashed, getting their just reward 
for having done it to, to Israel's Yahweh priests and prophets. I mean, isn't this how you want it to go in your life? To see God like this? Elijah goes against the mob and he wins. But then we read in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah isn't really in the best state. Ahab cries to his wife and says what Elijah has done. And now Jezebel threatens him. And I don't know, I think something gets lost here in Elijah a little bit. You see, it was God who did this. I mean, you think of all the amazing things that God did through Elijah's life. He said to Elijah, pray that, they, that this country doesn't get water. And they don't. He goes into Sidon. Remember, he, he, he stays with a Sidonian woman who has no more oil to make any food. And somehow the oil keeps happening and it keeps being there. Elijah even raises a child from the dead. And then he goes and he does this sees this amazing miracle of God working at Mount Carmel. And then he prays, and then the rain starts again. After three. Like all of this stuff that God is doing. And something gets lost in Elijah because Jezebel comes, threatens his life, and Elijah then walks a day with no servant. He drops his staff. The servant, he's like, don't come with me. I'm walking a day, no food, no drink. Elijah is done. He's finished. And Elijah seems to be at a place where he sees only himself. It appears as though Elijah is interpreting things in a way that leaves God out. I mean, it's only Jezebel. It's only one woman speaking. But Elijah seems, at least it appears that he feels all alone. That was only his fight and that he can't do it by himself anymore. It says, Elijah was afraid, ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. After this, Elijah breaks into a whole bunch of eyes and me's. He says, I've had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Elijah is singularly focused now. It seems like he's relying on his own definitions. He's leaning, and this is what it says in Proverbs not to do, he's leaning on his own understanding and he's starting to fall apart. He's resigning to his own self-definitions on his life, on his ministry, on himself, and so he makes a demand to God, take my life. Now think about that. He is walking into a place where you need food to live, where you need water to live, where you need someone else to help you out, and he's all alone where everything dies. Now there's two things that we need to be reminded about because we know that after this little part of the story here, God wakes him up. God doesn't acquiesce to his desire to die. You see, we don't define things for our lives. We don't define our own journeys. Only God knows where you are on the map. You don't and I don't define our impact. There are things that God has used you for that you will never, ever, ever know until you get to glory. And you might even not know that then. There are things you've said to people that have made an impact. There are things you've done to people that have made an impact. And you will never know. Because you are not your own. We don't define ourselves either. It's God who knit you. Getting some feedback a little bit here. That's okay. God made you who you are. 
God made you for a purpose. And it's not just your purpose. So if you're the type of person where you're always trying to figure out, well, who I am and am I doing the right thing? And, you know, I, get out of yourself. If you walk with Christ, it's not about you. Now here's the thing. Most of us fall into this trap sometimes. We set expectations for our lives that God didn't set for us. We plan, we work to go a certain direction, then God says, "Uh uh-uh, you're going this one now. And we have a choice. We trust Him or we implode. All of us drift away from God because just like Adam and Eve, we get convinced that, you know, you determine your reality. Oh, did God really say that that His Word's good? Why don't you pursue your own Word for yourself? And it only leads to destruction. It only leads to the unraveling. It only leads to crushed relationships. You are not about yourself. God has the last word on who you are. But how do we get out of this funk? This is where it gets really good. Salvation from ourselves starts with an experience of grace. Now here's the problem that pastors and preachers do, and theologians and professors we don't try to, but we just do it because it's, you know, it's part of our culture. We try to psychoanalyze people that lived like 2,000 years ago or whatever. I don't want to do that, but I'm kind of going kind to of do it. I think it's pretty safe to say that when we get lost in ourselves, the whole world becomes about us. Even our spirituality, even our pursuits of God becomes about us. And Elijah is so lost in himself, it seems that he forgets who's, who's running the show. He says in the imperative voice, okay, so in the imperative voice, that's a command. Okay, it, it, it's, it's, um, it's what's, what, what, what commanding officers tell soldiers. Do this, go there, get your gun, clean up your room, put the remote down. Okay, so if you look in the Hebrew, Elijah says this in the imperative Take my life. Hold on a second here. Elijah, do you know who's in charge here? You're not. And it's a bit surprising how God deals with him. I mean, it would make sense that God would just set him straight, right? Shake him up. Tear a strip off of him. Show him who's boss. I'm God, Elijah. You're not. Instead, we get an amazing picture of what is without question the hardest. It's grace. We talk about grace a lot at church, and so we should. We try to nail it down. We know that grace is God loving us of our sin. In fact, it's God liking us despite of our sin and our propensity to fall down. We know that it's God's favor. We know that it's God's gift. Think about all the gifts in your life. And you know you don't deserve it because you're just not that type of person. God just gives and gives and gives. That's His grace. So many theologians tell us that it's God's unmerited favor. In other words, all of the goodness in our lives we couldn't possibly pay back. And they're all great definitions, but sometimes you need to see a picture. And this might be the best one in all of Scripture. Grace in Elijah's case is God meeting him where he's at. So Elijah has his little hissy fit here. He, He walks into, he has the audacity as a prophet of God, to walk into, like, if there's a broom bush, broom bush somewhere, you know that it's basically in the middle of the desert where everything dies. He walks into the middle of this, this place where nothing lives, 
where he's beyond food, where he's beyond water, and he demands God to perform Dade. You know what Dade is? Divine assistance in death. It's like made, but it's Dade. It's audacious. He's God's man, and he's forcing God's hand. You know what, Lord? I'm going to die out here, but just take me out now under the broom bush. Then he wakes up. See, first of all, God listens. You know what God listens to you in your hissy fits? You know, when you're all riled up and, you know, the world's all contorted according to you and you're frustrated and the kids don't listen and your husband's even worse or your wife and, you know, the gas prices are just ridiculous and I just finished the, the uh, uh, property taxes and if you're in mission, you know what that's like. And, oh, you know, I just, oh, my, I'm, I guess I'm telling all the things I'm struggling with. My, my back's out and, you know, there's too much clover on my grass and I can't use killicks because I have a dog, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes you just pray like that. And God's like, oh yeah. See, Elijah had a tough week. Elijah had a tough life. Elijah worked for God. And he was just so tired. And God's like, I get it, Elijah. And then guess what? Not only that, he gives him breakfast. Elijah says, okay, Lord, just take me. He's under the broom bush. No wood, no water, no no wood. No water, no food. There's, there's no um, on-the-run camel stop gas stations where you can pick up a coconut toasted donut. The almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, star-making, universe-creating, author of all things, sends an Uber Eats angel with a cup of coffee and a scone or a, a jug of water and baked bread. He feeds him. He's tired. He's lonely, and God sends him a meal. Meal train. That's grace. No, Elijah, you're going to sit there in it. You're just going to sit in it. You're going to walk back, and you're going to go get food. God knows how brittle he is, so he brings him breakfast. And then he gives Elijah a gracious nudge. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. Notice here, there's no anger. There's no shouting. There's no shaming. There's no guilting. God gets him. He gets it. He gets you. He gets how you're made. He gets how you get wound up. He gets the things that disappoint you and tick you off. He gets the people that you just want to hug. He gets it. He knows how you're made. And so often when we find ourselves, and, and you know how often I've heard this? I've heard this so often. I was talking to someone who went through a big thing with church, and they left the church, this particular guy's church, and things have kind of blown over. And then um, you know, my friend asked them, hey, well, why aren't you coming back to church? And I'll just say, well, I just feel so stupid. I just feel that everybody's going to judge me. That's just where we go. And my friend says, he just, get over it and get back to church. We miss you. God gets us. He gets us. You see, we have this propensity as human beings to think, as long as, if I'm going to come back to God, I've got to get my crap together. 
got to do this. I do. It's like it's like a politician running in a in a campaign. Well, I got to make sure that all of my passes, all you know, figured out, and all this kind of stuff before anybody's going to vote for me. That's not how God works. God is the God. He doesn't go halfway. He doesn't go seventy percent. He goes all the way, and that's the cross. The cross is God's hundred percent going all the way for you, and so come as you are. Receive me. Accept me. And I absolutely love this last observation here. God redefines us by sending his word. I think this is the most beautiful part of the story. So God sends his angel. And I don't know, did the, was the angel visible? I don't know. Was he like invisible or she? Or I don't know. If, whatever. I don't know anything about angels. But after God listens, and after breakfast, the word of God comes. It's not a mind-shaking word. It's not like profound. It's not huge. It's not massive. He says, the angel says, as an ambassador of God, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. There are words to get Elijah to the next conversation with God. The real conversation was going to happen on Horeb. But this one would get him on his way. See, God is faithful here. There's no one else around. Elijah's beyond human reach. We've established that. God sends his word through an angel to nudge him closer to God. It's probably how it worked in your life. Someone, God sent you someone... To nudge you towards God. He usually sends someone or something to awaken you to take God seriously. Most of us came to faith that way. Most of us came to walking to God that way. God sent someone. And not in like a Jesus truck. Beep, beep, follow Jesus. But someone you didn't even know knew Jesus. And maybe it wasn't even a person at all. I know my friend Fred. You know, all these people like, those Bible tracts, they're so offensive. You know, you know, you, you, and, you, know I, you, you get in all these debates of like, well, God uses that, and God doesn't use that, and God, God uses everything. My friend Fred, faithful follower of Christ, got his first nudge toward God from a Bible tract he picked up on the countertop of a public washroom. Many people, and I just heard this recently from a woman, she testified about hearing God recently through a song on a radio that articulated her experience verbatim to the T. And it moved her to go find a church. How many people get a nudge in rehab? How many of you got a nudge from a friend? How many of you, well, a lot of us, how, long, how many of you fell in love with someone and you weren't even thinking about God? But that person just pointed you towards him. For me, I was at a Bible school, and all we went to this Bible school to do was party and see Europe. Then all of a sudden, a preacher came. I wasn't even thinking about the Bible or God. And all of a sudden, a preacher came in, and God used him to shake me out of sheer deadness. And then two months later, Jesus was the only thing I was thinking about. Almost like clockwork. God sends a little word before he sends the big words colleague at work, a simple message at youth group. I just heard about a testimony that someone said, 
I just went to a youth group with my friend, and someone just said a message, and it just made me think. Who was it that God sent to you? And who is God sending you to? You know, the reality is, you probably don't even know you're doing it. And so that's the thing. That's why when we get all into this, oh, am I doing this right, Lord? Am I doing that right? And I better read, it's not about you. It's about him. He's faithful. Next week, we're going to see how important God's word is to Elijah. How God's word trumps every massive thing in this world. It is, don't miss it, it is a phenomenal story. But maybe you are a person right now, you're stuck and you're ticked off. The world is not how it should be and you've, you've let yourself down. You're, you should have been better than you are now. And you should have been further along now. And you, you blew it. And, you know what? and even pity. And oh, everybody did this to me. And just like, it's time that you come to Christ. As you are, a couple hundred years ago, almost, a woman by the name of Charlotte Elliott wrote a song called Just As I Am. It was made famous about a hundred and some on years later when a man named George Beverly Shea sang it at every single Billy Graham crusade. Listen to the words. Just as I am without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me, And that you beg me come to the old Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, and waiting, not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to those whose blood, to, to the one whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, sightings and fears within, without, Lamb of God, I come, I come. Just as I am, you will receive with welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because of your promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. Oh. What a relief to be reminded of who God is. And all we got to do is come to him. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for these wonderful stories. We thank you for Elijah. Even he, after seeing you work so profoundly, got lost in a lot of different things. Help us, Lord, to remember that you take us as we are. You are not surprised by us. And you are the one who defines us and determines our steps.